From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. In a moment, we're going to bring you our interview with Nigel Farage about the closure of his bank account by Coots. The response from the bank, the Prime Minister, and also our finance reporter, Will Shaw, to explain it all. Yeah, look forward to that. But first, just a note that today's show is free of big P politics as voting is taking place in those three parliamentary by-elections in London, Somerset and North Yorkshire. We are very excited about those and we look forward to discussing them at great length in Mm -hmm. tomorrow's show. But in order to comply with the rules today, we're going to focus on the latest from Ukraine as wheat prices spike again and an interesting report on working from home. Yeah, because did you know people in the UK uh, work from home more than in any other European country? In fact, we're second only to Canada out of all of the countries surveyed. Britons work remotely an average of a day and a half a week, almost half a day more than the international average. Yeah, interesting this. The research comes from a German think tank called the IFO Centre for Macroeconomics and Surveys. <laughs> and looking at the data after the UK, Germany comes second in Europe in terms of days spent at home, an average of one day a week. In Italy, just it's just 0.7 days a week, and in France, 0.6 days. So just across the channel, that's barely more than one day at home every fortnight. A big, big difference to hear. Yeah, it is. I mean, why is that? Is that to do with our weather? Is it the fact that we commute for the longest times in Europe? I mean, it's well is over that, an hour. That's right, is it? Yeah, no, I've seen year after year, they do an average a yearly survey of how long people um, spend getting to work, and ages ago it went above an hour. Um, it might be that. Having said that, we have small and expensive homes compared to Europe. Heating them is pricey too. So I don't know. There's that to factor in. Maybe it's childcare costs also. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a bit of a north-south divide, isn't there? Because London and the southeast, obviously, people, a lot of people live in very small homes mm. and they commute for very, very long times. So I feel like the picture is less bad in some other parts of the country. Yeah, you've also got to have a job, you know, that, where you can work from a computer at home. That's, that's not, not everybody. No, absolutely not. No. But no, I, I do also think that there was a survey out uh, in the last fortnight, which was from CFOs. So these are chief financial officers in businesses in the UK. And they were talking about um, how the average was two and a half days work from home, um, that CFOs wanted to bring that 
down, but that actually UK workers wanted to do more like three and a half days oh, from home, which was which is a lot. Um, but CFOs were very you know, business bosses basically were quite keen to keep a lid on that. Yeah, I do wonder if as the as the uh, labour market becomes less tight and, and there is there is less power for workers and more power for companies, if they will start to push people back into the office a little bit more. I've seen this, uh, I think, from sure, some of the... Sure, if unemployment goes up, which is the result of having higher interest rates and a tougher economy... Maybe. Yeah, I think some of the big some of the big companies, some of the big banks in the US, have been pushing people back over the last year or so, and I do wonder if that's going to um, come over here. Another interesting piece of research I saw on the terminal last week was it's into the uh, valuations of offices, of mm. course, because everybody working at home does have an effect on that, and potentially it says eight hundred billion dollars could be wiped off the value of offices uh, around the world if working from home uh, continues as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think the real issue, though. Um, in the property market, in the commercial property market, is that in order to get those people to come back to the office, apparently now it's the super duper greenest, loveliest buildings yes. in London that are the most valuable. With all and, the fancy facilities. Yeah, yeah. and anything else. Uh, people don't really want so much of that. Uh, to attract everyone to get into the yes. office. <laughs> anyway, that's one way of um, doing it, isn't it? Trying to attract your workers to come back uh, to a swanky office. Right, that's the work from home issue. But let's get to our big story today. Now, I want to move on to an important interview that we've done. Uh, the former leader of the UK Independence and Brexit Party, Nigel Farage, has called for a parliamentary inquiry into why Coots closed his bank account last month. So the pro-Brexit politician, speaking to Bloomberg Radio, says that the internal documents from the bank, a unit of NatWest, show that his account was closed because of his views. Farage published a 40-page report from Coots yesterday. It's not limited to Farage's financial position. It also includes analysis of his public comments and media coverage. And I'm sure you know, but this issue has created a media storm which has drawn in the Prime Minister. Joining me now in studio is Bloomberg's finance reporter, Will Shaw. Will, good morning. Good morning. We've been tracking this story and we interviewed Nigel Farage together yesterday yesterday. How did, first of all, this row actually all start? So a few weeks ago, Coots, which is a banker to the wealthy, including the royal family, closed down his bank account. Now, at the time, people familiar with that decision indicated that that was because he hadn't deposited enough money um, with the firm. Similar stories ran in the BBC and the Financial Times. Um, Nigel Farage, however, had put in a subject access request to Coots, asking documents um, that would indicate why the decision was made. Now, these documents appear to suggest that they considered his political views and made an assessment that his values didn't match to Coots's wider commitment to inclusion. Um, in particular, the, these documents uh, apparently mention perceptions as him, of him as being xenophobic and racist and even describe him or even mention a perception that he's a disingenuous grifter. So whatever you think about Nigel Farage and his opinions, those are very strong words. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, um, well, you and I spoke to the politician and broadcaster Nigel Farage. So I want us to listen to that extensive interview. Have a listen now. Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that when that decision was taken, it was because I do not fit with their agenda. I do not fit with their policies, apparently, of diversity and inclusion. I do not represent their values. I am a very, very bad person because I happen to hold views which are legal and are majority views in the country that the upper class, uh, upper middle class types 
that inhabit coots don't share. So it's pretty clear. If you look at the 17th of November, it's pretty Nigel, clear that decision was made. Nigel, have they lied then? They've lied about the uh, they've lied about the initial reason for closing the account. Yes, um, I mean what they would say in their defence is that since November 2022, there was a big drawdown on the account, a temporary drawdown on the account, but it's now back up to the levels that they themselves described as commercially viable. So look, you know, they've been absolutely dishonest about this all the way through. In in this document, it says that at one point it says it's clear that you project xenophobic, chauvinistic and racist views, although you've done it within the law. And there's also they also say there's a perception of you as a disingenuous grifter. Uh, Do you have any any plans to sue the bank or is it your view that anyone at um, NatWest or Coots ought to resign over this? It is bile. It is poison. It is written with venom. It is prejudiced in a most extraordinary way that only the upper middle classes who live in central London postcodes could possibly do. Um, And I think this is why airing it in public is causing them such a panic. Uh, Look, should should someone do you do you think that someone ought to resign over it? And if so, who? I tell you what I think should happen. I think the bosses of the RBS group should appear before a parliamentary committee to explain why they now make political and moral judgments on customers of theirs who meet their financial requirements and who give opinions that are entirely within the law and are majority views in this country. In terms of the timing then, uh, that was the other question I was going to ask you. Obviously, you were leader of UKIP between 2006-2009, Brexit Party leader 2010 to 2016. Why do you think the bank made the decision now? I think it's the whole RBS group. I think that uh, the boss of the group now, Alison Rose, has taken uh, Coots and taken Nat West uh, into territory that I think is highly political. I think there's been a shift <clears throat> in the way these banks view the world and view their customers. And that is my best guess as to the timing of it. There's nothing I've said or done that's any different to what I've said and done for the previous 20 years. Bloomberg last year wrote about the performance of an investment advice service that you were promoting. Um, if people had followed that advice, they would have lost quite a bit of money. The performance was no, worse they wouldn't, than the- they'd have been in gold. And in sterling terms, gold has been at all time highs. And if you want to talk to me about anything else, you can do what the hell you like. I'm not interested. All right. In terms of Alison Rose, you think that she has questions yeah. to answer personally for this situation? I think she's going to be questioned by, I think mainstream media, as we speak, are asking those questions. You know, what have you done? What have you done to this banking group? What direction are you taking it in? Aren't you beginning to behave a bit more like a political organisation than a bank group that is 40% owned by the taxpayer? So, yeah, look, I just hope by coming out in public, I sponsor a very, very big debate about what banks are for. And ultimately, ultimately what I want is for everybody to have the right to a bank account, the right to their own business account. This used to exist in our country before the privatisation of the post office. It still exists in in comparable Mm. countries like France and Germany. And I think this is a very, very important and fundamental issue because, you know, as we move towards a more and more digitised society, whether we like it or not, without a bank account, you simply can't exist. I mean, you virtually become a non-person. 
So that was the politician and broadcaster Nigel Farage talking about the contents of that report, why Coots made the decision. Now, in response to Farage's comments, a spokesperson for Coots has given us this statement. It's being read here in full by a Bloomberg journalist. We recognise the substantial interest in this case. We cannot comment on the detail given our customer confidentiality obligations. However, it is not Coots' policy to close customer accounts solely on the basis of legally held political and personal views. Decisions to close an account are not taken lightly and involve a number of factors, including commercial viability, reputational considerations and legal and regulatory requirements. We recognise the critical importance of access to banking. When it became clear that our client was unable to secure banking facilities elsewhere and, as he has confirmed publicly, he was offered alternative banking facilities with NatWest, that offer stands. We understand the public concern that the process for ending a customer relationship and how that is communicated are not sufficiently transparent. We welcome the anticipated HM Treasury recommendations in this area alongside the ask to prioritise the review of the regulatory rules related to politically exposed persons. We look forward to working with the government, the regulator and the wider industry to ensure that universal access to banking is maintained. Okay, so that is the Coots response then uh, to Nigel Farage's comments there in full. Uh, Bloomberg's finance reporter Will Shaw is still with me. Um, To really go through this story, how significant an issue actually is this idea of closing bank accounts for customers? I think it would be easy to say, oh, this is just Nigel Farage. This is just something that affects one person. He obviously has a very unique uh, political standing in UK life. Um, despite his sort of class war rhetoric, he's from a wealthy background. He's a former trader. Um, and until very recently, he even had an account with Coots. However, like there is concern that this might well set a wider precedent. As you heard him warning there, uh, there are lots of people that share Nigel Farage's views, as, as he would be he would be quick to point out, and as the Brexit vote demonstrated in 2016. So he would argue that if he can be targeted on on his Mm. political values all kinds of people can be targeted in the same way Uh, and speaking of which um it has drawn in you know quite a number of politicians you know we heard it discussed in parliament yesterday and in fact the prime minister made some comments too have a listen to what he said it it wouldn't be right if financial services were being denied to anyone exercising their right to lawful free speech. Uh, our new Financial Services and Markets Act put, puts in place new measures to ensure that politically exposed persons are being treated in an appropriate and proportionate manner. And having consulted on the payment services regulations, we are, we are in the process of cracking down on this practice by tightening the rules around account closures. So Rishi Sunak there speaking yesterday. So what do you think will could actually result from all of this? So um, Nigel Farage obviously has called for a parliamentary inquiry. Um, now, a lot of the criticism that we were hearing in Parliament yesterday is from I, what you might call ideological bedfellows of, of Nigel Farage. Um, what I would say is the it seems to this incident seems to have raised eyebrows at the Financial Conduct Authority, which is probably a little bit more concerning for Coots and NatWest. Um, so Nikhil Ratti, who's head of the Financial Conduct Authority, was speaking to yesterday 
yesterday. He said he'd spoken to Coots. Mm-hmm. Um, he was talking at Parliament's Treasury Select Committee. Um, he he discussed UK UK and European Union uh, regulation, and he said that essentially the financial firms are not able to discriminate on the the political views of their customers. Okay. Um, so just lastly. A final thought on what it might mean for Coots, Nat West, CEO Alison Rose. We've, I mean, we've heard very little of them so from them so far, particularly from from Nat West, who appear to be letting Coots do do uh, the most of the talking on this. Um, Nat West obviously is still largely state owned. Um, it doesn't look like the headlines are going to fade on this anytime soon. Okay. I, I would anticipate further pressure. Okay, absolutely. Uh, Will, thank you so much. We also want to take a look at the biggest story in Europe that's also very important for UK politics over the next year, and that is, of course, Ukraine. Our news director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, Ros Matheson, joins us now. Ros, thanks so much for dropping into the uh, the studio. Now, it's, it's almost 18 months since the start of the conflict. Bring us up to date what's been happening over the last few weeks, particularly with Ukraine's um, counter, counter-offensive. Well, that's right. As you said, the counteroffensive has been on for several weeks now, and we've seen some progress by the Ukrainian forces, but it's been really slow going. So uh, the gains largely incremental, and that's despite the influx of, of weapons and other military support into Ukraine. Of course, Russia, meanwhile, is failing to, to gain further ground themselves. Um, and we're seeing a pickup in result, really, of kind of the air, air attacks by mm. Russia. That's a, a reflection of their difficulty on the ground. So we're seeing frequent uh, attacks now, missile and drone attacks, not just on Kiev, but increasingly in the south of Ukraine. And that's around the Black Sea port areas, including Odessa. And that's where Ukrainian uh, troops are hoping to make their biggest inroads uh, to mm. reclaim territory. And of course, the biggest prize in all of that for Russia is is Crimea, uh, which uh, Vladimir Putin annexed um, over a decade ago. Um, Yeah, absolutely. But there have also been some significant moves when it comes to the Black Sea in the last few days. They've had impacts on, you know, global markets, but they are significant at sea. Well, that's right. And the decision by Russia to pull out of this deal, which was allowing Ukrainian grain to flow out into the world, has had a big impact. It's had a knock-on effect already on markets. Um, I mean, there were no ships really getting in or out in the last couple of weeks, so it was very much on a slow burn anyway. But this puts it obviously off for some time to come. And Russia, of course, threatening that if any ships come near Ukraine, uh, grain ships, um, that there will be military uh, um, repercussions for that. There's talk that they've been remining the areas around the harbours and so on of, of some of the, the areas that they occupy. And certainly the message is that they don't want any Ukrainian grain getting out by sea um, from those ports in the foreseeable future. And that's a really significant development, uh, not just for Ukraine, obviously, but also for global food supply and potentially food inflation. This grain is really important to countries in North Africa, the Middle East and Africa and beyond. How's the mood in the Kremlin? Clearly, this war hasn't gone uh, in the way that uh, President Putin would have liked it to have gone. Uh, What's the resolve like in the Kremlin and also Russian public opinion as we head towards the, the back half of this year? 
Well, it's really difficult to gauge what's going on inside the Kremlin at the moment, but obviously sort of an, an attempted mutiny of this scale or whatever um, you want to call it is is optically bad for a leader like Vladimir Putin to have that kind of overt challenge really to his approach with the war in Ukraine. You can see bits and pieces coming out, um, little by little signs of disquiet within the elite uh, in Russia, certainly disquiet within the ranks of the military and the defense. Defense Ministry. Uh, and you see some senior military types speaking out, obviously also upset with the trajectory of the war, but also the way that the Defence Ministry has kind of run this conflict in such a kind of ham-fisted way. So divisions opening up there. The question is, what does that all mean um, mm. in the longer term? Is there a, sort of a point where there becomes a more overt challenge to Vladimir Putin's rule? Do we see that in the elections next year? Does someone put their name forward to challenge him in that vote? Uh, it doesn't seem like he's in imminent danger of course, but certainly um, there are some concerning signs for him coming out now. Um, Now that the dust has settled from the major NATO gathering, which saw President Biden in Europe, of course, and and the discussions around um, Sweden and Finland's entry into the uh, defence agreement, after the dust has sort of settled on that, what is our view around the unity of NATO in the face of this, um, you know, Russian aggression? What's your reading of that now? Well, it's a really interesting question, and it's an important question also for the UK, um, which has been, you know, a very strong supporter of Ukraine throughout, along the side the US and countries in Europe, sending a lot of military aid in. And we saw signs of fractures at that NATO summit, a bit of exasperation with Ukraine. Of course, the Ukrainian president, before he arrived, um, sounded quite cross about the fact that he felt that there was no appetite to 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 have Ukraine join NATO anytime soon. You saw in response a bit of frustration spilling out in the open, which was, hang on, we've done a lot. We've sent you loads of weapons. We've sent you lots of financial aid. We're doing as much as we can. And frankly, you know, is there some gratitude that could come? You actually saw that comment come out, right, from the US Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, um, at the time. So there are signs of... Yeah, UK. Sorry, UK, rather. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, But you do see signs of fatigue perhaps creeping in. And as this war goes on, you get into the US election cycle, for example, are you going to see that fatigue only become more and more apparent? And the reports of uh, disagreements over language after the recent uh, Latin American EU summit, how does the rest of the world feel about this conflict? Because I think in the West, we sometimes think that it's only a couple of outlying countries who sort of take uh, Russia's side, but it's not as simple as that, is it? Mm and it's it's not that they're taking Russia's side it's more that they just don't want to get involved that they think that this is not a conflict that they need to pick a side on. Um, And that's a significant part of the world. I mean, it's often called the Global South for want of another phrase, but it really is a lot of countries in Latin America, Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, and also parts even of Asia uh, and so on. And these countries are just simply saying, we don't want to be drawn into this. Um, And also they're concerned about the knock-on effects of the conflict, again, on things like energy supply, food supply. They're often the ones that bear the brunt of that um, and impact on inflation. And so it's not that... So they think that the war is a great thing and they support Russia. They simply don't want to be forced to to be part of the sort of the allied group that's supporting Ukraine. In terms of the UK over the next year or two, if this war continues, how much change do you think it is going to make in terms of military defence thinking in Britain? Um, 
there is already you know, a great deal more discussion now about rebuilding stockpiles, a lot of which have gone to Ukraine from Europe, from the UK, uh, about military spending. What do you think is the longer term impact on military thinking within the UK? Well, it's interesting because it is already prompting that rethink, as you say, and it's about military stockpiles. Um, It's interesting to see the weaponry that's proved most useful in Ukraine, old-fashioned stuff like ammunition uh, and and so on. And, you know, countries thinking, well, in a future, what kind of weaponry do we need um, to focus on and do we need to shift our defence spending in certain directions? So there's that conversation going on. Uh, But there's also the broader conversation about the amount that's spent on defence in general. And you can see that Ben Wallace, for example, has pushed for increases in defence spending um, and not had a massive amount of success uh, within the government. But, you know, in the frame of it, the Tories are also facing big questions about the state of the economy in general and don't have that money to spend. The the question is, is there going to be appetite to think about where the UK needs to be in 10, 20, 30 years from now and spend now for that? And that's the kind of very difficult conversation that's hard to have in the current political environment that we're in in the UK, especially again with a UK election, perhaps coming up before too long it's depressing that we're sitting here uh, a year on talking you know looking ahead to a, a second winter for, for this war but what's the resolve in in Kiev as, as as we look ahead to potentially you know a, a second a second winter for this war, for this war? Well, certainly there's a, a strong sense of determination that you feel very clearly uh, from Ukraine, uh, from the people of Kiev, but also um, many other areas in, say, eastern and southern Ukraine also, um, and, a, and, a, and a feeling that they can actually win this war. Um, whether that's practically true um, remains to be seen. And that also makes it tricky for Volodymyr Zelensky because he has said he will not negotiate an inch of Ukrainian territory away. But as time goes on, you can imagine the pressure may come from the US, the UK and others to say, you know, you're going to have to agree to sit down at the table about this. So that's going to put him in a really, really difficult position. You've got Ukrainians saying, no, we're going to fight on, we can win. You start to get the noises from some countries saying, maybe we need to be a bit realistic about that and how long this war could go on for. And so that could put him in a really, really tricky spot over the next year. Yeah, absolutely. Ros Matheson, thank you so much for being with us. That is Bloomberg's News Director for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, Rosalind Matheson. Just in terms of the wheat prices, though, wheat prices really have soared. I mean, this obviously is, you know, our specialist area of expertise. But looking at the data uh, yesterday and today, the benchmark futures, though this is global wheat prices, they have climbed 14% in just three sessions, so over three days. Really is a very extreme move if you look at it over the past few years. Yesterday, I think was the biggest spike in a decade yes. so really quite concerning when we're talking about food prices some of the inflation starting to come off its peaks this is another uh, uh, factor coming playing into that so uh, yeah big spike in wheat prices well that's it from us for today uh, we'll be back to normal of course tomorrow to analyze the by-election results from those three constituencies of course including the constituency of the former prime minister Boris Johnson. Yeah, looking forward to that. Very exciting. If you like the programme today, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marie Fossein. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.